0: Hey there. It's Jessica Honiger, founder of the socially conscious fashion brand Noonday Collection. And this is the Going Scared podcast, where we cover all things social impact, entrepreneurship, and courage. And I'm feeling a little bittersweet about this episode because this wraps up our Imperfect Courage series. For the last 13 weeks, we have gone through chapter by chapter of my new book, Imperfect Courage. We hope that you recommend this series to your friends, post about it, talk about it. It really is meant to go alongside the book. So if you haven't downloaded the book yet via Audible or bought it, make sure you go put it into your cart. It makes for a really great gift going into the new year because it really is about encouraging people to live a life of courage by leaving comfort and going scared. And today's episode is a truly special guest for me because his work has really influenced my thinking. Specifically, he's written a book called Playing God and Strong and Weak, and both of these books really helped create a framework for me around this concept of how do we go about building a flourishing world, which is the title of chapter 12. His most recent book was 2017's The TechWise Family, so he also talks a lot about technology, and Andy has become a mentor and a friend. He is the partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, which is an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. It's actually an organization that I have been able to be involved with, and we definitely go deep in this conversation, and he just helps me to see the world differently. And once I see it that way, he gives me a framework to sort of hang my hat on it. Sometimes I feel like I have this messy closet going on in my brain. And Andy kind of helps me clean up my clothes and know where to put them. And I just feel a lot more free knowing how to kind of approach my life in a way that will really make an impact. So I'm excited for you to get to hear a little bit more from him today. curious because you told me that you've read my book (laughs) and I have told you on numerous occasions effusively what an influence you have had on my life. I mean, you've had a huge influence on my thought leader. You played as such a thought leader in my life. And I was just curious as you were reading my book, could you see reflections of yourself in it? Like, could you see some of these influences?
1: Uh, I suppose, yes. I mean, uh, I don't know that I was reading it looking for that. Um, uh, But uh, actually, what I was more struck by was how many mutual influences we share, uh, Uh, especially Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., which um, you've been more, you had more time with that uh, community but I—it's very formative in my uh, my own life.
0: Yeah, tell me about that. I'm so curious about that.
1: Yeah, when I was a student, um, uh, in undergrad, when I was in, in college, um, uh, one of the campus ministries arranged kind of a, a week long trip to DC, and it was—it was really my first. Gosh, it was really my first exposure to urban ministry of any kind. Um, mm. And, and one of our sort of landing places was Church of the Savior, um, which for, for those who have not intimately read your book, you know, uh, <laughs> is this quite extraordinary story of a, mm. a, an, a radically, I would say intentional group of Christians who basically said, if you're going to be a member of this church, you will uh, that that intrinsically means pouring yourself out in some very distinctive way in service. So this church never had more than, I don't know, a few dozen, maybe a hundred members at the very most. Be- well,
0: because it was radical it required even living in right, the community. Right. I and mean, it was, it was, it was radical, yeah. so radical.
1: So there's there's almost no Christian community I can think of, certainly outside of maybe some group of monks or nuns that that um What you know, punched above its weight so powerfully in terms of how few people were actually, strictly speaking, members, and yet how much they did. And so I encountered that in college, and then I did. I was in campus ministry for uh, 10 years and took uh, a group of students. And
0: where were you? Where did you go to undergrad? So
1: I went to Cornell University for undergrad. That's right, that's um, right. And then worked with students at Harvard University and took a group uh, of students to D.C. one year, um, and we were based at one of – there's a number of congreg- congregations connected with Church of the Savior – um, and it was, it was just a, a powerful experience. So that was um, the little community that they had in the Shaw neighborhood, which now is, you know, full of completely renovated brownstones, but at the time was um, a very, very distressed neighborhood. The, the neighbors on both sides of, of this community were drug dealers. The drug dealers actually liked uh, this church very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and anyway, it was, it, was, uh, it was a glimpse to me of what discipleship could do. <laughs>
0: Yeah, You know, I'm so grateful because in my spiritual growth, I never encountered a Christianity that didn't involve being the hands and feet. So I never really went through this Ah. like, oh, okay, this isn't just about, you know, love God. It was always, that's what it meant. Even the church I grew up in, they started the first homeless shelter in San Antonio. It's in downtown San Antonio. And I'm just so grateful for that. Mm. And this kind of leads me to my next question because in chapter one of my book, I think it's chapter one, it might be chapter two, it went through so many edits <laughs> that I can't keep up with the At some still. point it was
1: chapter one. <laughs>
0: At some point it was chapter one. And I quote you as talking about the only thing that money can buy uh, is bubble wrap. Yes. And of course the journey that I want my reader to go on in this book and actually in his or her life is to acknowledge places where we wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and how can we rip that off? Uh, Can you tell me first, so was that a ripping off of the bubble wrap for you? And then tell me more, how have you been able to flesh out this in your life?
1: Well, I think there have been many moments, um, actually, increasingly, I would say, in my life where I've pursued bubble wrap removal uh, projects. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for me, because of where my, I, I, I believe, I hope, where my calling and my, uh, then for twenty-four years now, my family's calling has taken us. It's it's always involved displacement because uh, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for fifteen years. This is a obviously, elite, prosperous city in many ways, not a city without problems, but um, a comfy place to live. And now we live in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, which is a super comfy place to live. And it's where we raised our kids with much Mm -hmm. trepidation, actually. Um, And so I've had to go, uh, the way I think of it is go on pilgrimages uh, frequently. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's a really important distinction between being a tourist and being a pilgrim. Um, When you go somewhere as a tourist, you go there to be treated better than you're treated at home, (laughs) to be Mm -hmm. kind of in an unobtrusive way, the center of the world, uh, or to have an experience that sort of elevates you and makes you feel really special. Like, wow, I'm in Florence, or I'm in, you know, Miami Beach, or, you know, whatever your, your drug of choice is. Um, when you go on a pilgrimage, you go, um, I mean, you may be well treated, often you're, you're received with incredible hospitality um, on pilgrimage, but you go because you know there's something in this other place and in the people who dwell there um, that you need, that you don't have, um, that will transform you. So we really don't. I, for all the rhetoric of tourism about you know life-changing experiences on the Riviera or whatever, we we go really to be fundamentally affirmed that we are the kind of people who have these experiences. <laughs> um, but right. you go on pilgrimage to be really radically challenged and changed. And certainly that trip to Church of the Savior or those uh, couple trips um, and many, many others, um, to some extent before and, and a lot since, are all exercises for me in in getting the bubble wrap off for at least a little bit. And um, I mean, I come home and I'm once more, you know, the casing starts to re reform, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. uh, but I try to just constantly be planning to be in places that are going to be difficult for me, that I'm not going to have a lot of competence. Um, I'm not necessarily going to have a lot to offer, but I have a lot to learn and I trust that uh, I mean, for me as a Christian, that God is there in those places. In some way, is willing to meet me in those places. In a way that I suppose God is willing to meet me every day, but that I'll never find out about un- unless I take those those journeys. Um, so that's just a habit of my life now.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about because I love I love that. And you know, New Day Collection, we actually. At a lot of direct sales companies, you actually do win trips to the Riviera.
1: Yes, right, right, <laughs> but,
0: exactly. But, you know, and, <laughs> but at, in our company, you get to win trips to Haiti. Exactly. And
1: I love it. I love, I love
0: it. this idea of pilgrimage. Yeah. And it is when we go, we're actually getting to know our partners. And it's the yes. very people that are actually creating income opportunities for us in America. So wow. it's this whole, equalizing trip, you know, where we're going to go meet the people who, you know, they have a stake on our success and we have a stake on their success. Mm -hmm. And we do just get to actually celebrate together. We even actually in Haiti, we even um all did go to a beach resort together with the artists. And so we have not been on a vacation because a vacation is a luxury. Of course. And I mean that that those have been some of my most Uh. treasured times. But let's talk about pilgrimage here, because I know even in your life, I mean, don't you play piano for a church of people that maybe don't look just like you? Like, how do we go on pilgrimage here? We don't, you know, you don't, I don't want people to mislead people to say you have to go get a passport yes. to go no, very, rip the bubble Oh, off. that's so
1: important. Uh, yes. I mean, it's literally down the street. Uh, and anyone uh, who's in the U.S. listening to this podcast within a, you know, five minute drive and and- some direction probably is an opportunity for this kind of displacement. Um, I mean, you mentioned just uh, in terms of a a very formative thing in my life was, uh, was as a musician. So I'm, I'm trained as a musician. I I play piano. um, But in college, I mean, so much happened that was good for me in terms of my, my, growth as a human being and as, as a follower of Christ. Uh, and one thing was ending up apprenticing in a black church. I am not black uh, for those of us uh, who are listening by podcast. <laughs> I'm super pale. Um, so I literally was formed in that, in the black church, specifically St. James's Ami Zion Church in Ithaca, New York, a small little congregation um, who very graciously allowed me to be the piano player for the, the Zion Harmonizers, which was the junior choir of St. James's Amy Zion Church. And um, the junior choir was uh, anyone under the age of about 55 who wanted to sing. So there was a senior choir and they had a piano player. She wasn't going anywhere, but they needed someone to play for this uh, slightly younger group. And I said, well, I don't know gospel. Uh, I mean, I I was trained classically. Uh, I loved like popular music and had learned to do some of that on the piano, but I certainly didn't understand like the, the rhythmic or harmonic vocabulary of gospel. And they said, mm. well, we'll teach you. And um, very, very graciously, <laughs> they did. And I did learn something enough to fool some of the people some of the time, I would say. Um, and much more significantly than the music, really. Uh, well, first, I just got to experience being a minority, which I had okay. honestly not experienced in any sustained way up to that point in my life. Um mm. I I did pick up like I love I love the way that uh, preaching in the black church is a communal experience and you know the call and response and I think most people are familiar with that and I came out of uh, those years at St James's thinking why don't why don't I at least to some extent participate verbally when someone is pouring themselves out in front of an audience. Like, why not be a little verbal and present? Like, you know, just... And so it apparently has become kind of famous or notorious or something. <laughs> and I have people tell me, like, I'll, I'll be in a room of hundreds of people, and I'm just in the audience somewhere. And people are like, I knew you were in the room. <laughs> <because> <laughs> yes,
0: I love it. And I think it was disarming for me because I, you're like, I read your books, and I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's like smart, petty, <laughs> but you're actually so warm. Uh, well,
1: Well, I... I, it was very uh, transformative and all through just pure grace and mercy. I mean, whenever we go into cross-cultural environments, we make mistakes, most of which we never never know that we made uh, because right. people are very gracious. And um, and so I'm sure there was a lot of that, but there, there is also a gift of hospitality, not just in the yeah. African-American church, but in many um, what we call minority communities. They will increasingly be, will all be minorities. Uh, and... Um, Gosh, it was
0: so formative. <laughs> so yeah, that's where that comes from. You know, So many times we just need these stories that give us permission to go rip the bubble wrap off by just going and being a minority yeah, somewhere. Yeah.
1: It's important to go um, as a learner. And uh, I think that was the great opportunity I had. I, very, I had a very kind of clear reason I was there in a way. I mean, I was there to learn gospel, yes, to serve by playing, but everyone knew I was there, I, I had to learn. And that made me, I, I think, you know, one of the really uh, w- very challenging things about being white, especially white, uh, shall we say, educated, whatever class that makes you, I'm not sure middle class or upper middle class are that helpful in this context. But uh, one of the challenges we have is that our the mediated representations we get of people of color, uh, even today uh, in 2018, as we're speaking, so often... Um, position how, how should I put this they do not position us as learners um, and and then the relationships that we may have um, the kind of glancing relationships or some deeper relationships, we often unconsciously go in with a kind of assumption of superiority. And it's not even, I wouldn't even say in a narrow sense, it's its our fault. It's its how we're socialized. It's the options we've been given. It's the story that was handed to us, often handed to our own parents and grandparents. Like, it, it's very difficult. And the point is not to assign blame. But you really have to go in as an apprentice, as, as a novice, as someone who doesn't know and and just learn. Um be curious, and, yes. So
0: curious and non-judgmental yes. as you are learning. Yes,
1: exactly. Like I don't, you know. For example, um, the the way uh, I write about this in Playing God or one of my books, Playing God are Strong and Weak. I think I write about it more in Strong and Weak. The way that um, pastors in the African American church um, carry themselves. In my cultural context, the the most natural word I would tend to assign to that, if I were evaluating it without understanding it, uh, would be a, a it would be something like authoritarian. There's a, there's a lot of authority that comes with being the pastor. Mm-hmm. And by the mm-hmm. way, uh, this is one of the unknowing mistakes we so often make in our desire to be friendly. And for us, in a lot of white American culture, friendly means informal. You know, you address that pastor by their first name um, outside of a friendship relationship, like in a public context. Oh, my, my friend Richard, you know, or my friend Claude. That's actually very disrespectful in the black church context. Like this is, you know, this is Bishop Alexander. This is Pastor Richard um mm-hmm. or pastor stevens or whatever um and and white people in our desire to sort of act like we're friendly <laughs> actually don't honor the that position now i i could go in and real and and judge that and prejudge that and instead i have to go in and say okay this is different from how it's done in my cultural context but maybe if i stick around long enough i'll actually learn why it's different and, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that I would give all instances of pastoral authority in the black church a, a free pass, because there are times when people abuse this power. But also, by the way, white pastors abuse their informal power all the time. Oh, and, and there's this sort of um, manipulation that happens through informality, just as there can be a, a kind of exploitation that happens through formality or formal power. Um, so it's not that I ultimately can't make discernment about how people handle that authority they're given. But it's so easy to go in and just prejudge it. And you, you have to go assuming there's a good reason things are the way they are in this culture, wherever it is. <laughs> and and I have to first learn and uh, be an apprentice before before I'd ever start to be able to perhaps evaluate.
0: Which is something that's accessible to all of us. I think we often, we hear, we know that other cultures have different rules and we think I'm going to offend or mm. I'm not going to get it right. So I'm just not going to go mm. try this out because I'm just afraid I'm going to hurt someone or be offensive. And the truth is it's really about, and Tasha talks a lot about this, like, yeah, you are going to offend. <laughs> totally. Like that's real. <laughs> that's gonna happen so it really is about checking your heart and the attitude of your heart are you being curious are you being a learner and that's something that we all have access to to be being- totally
1: and and just to uh, d- drill down on that a bit the first of all the truth is the offense that that I may cause uh, unknowingly um, is is nothing compared to the challenges that uh, people of color live with every day. So it's a drop in the bucket Mm. and they're going to respond in one of three ways. Uh, One is it probably will not be uh, they uh, folks who have to live with these assumptions that are the the assumptions of the dominant culture, they have coping mechanisms. So it may sort of roll off and and they'll just graciously overlook it. That often happens and you'll never know. Uh, The second is it will actually be very troubling and they won't tell you because they don't trust you. The third best option is that you'll actually get pushback at the right time. And sometimes mm-hmm. it'll feel a little abrupt or surprising. And I actually think what we're mm. I think what we're often afraid of is not offending, it's it's being confronted with being offending. And yet, if you just stay in the relationship at that point and say, oh, mm. I am so sorry, Tell, ex- help me understand, I'm sorry that I have to ask you to help me understand, 95% of the time, on the other side of that, trust is built and relationship is deepened. Um, but we often fear that that confrontation um, when in fact… That confrontation is an expression of a willingness to go deeper in the relationship, because if I don't want to go into a relationship with you, I just won't tell you. And uh, uh, But if I tell you, that actually means I'm willing to let you into my world, let you see how how my actions, I'm mixing up my pronouns here, but how those offensive actions came, came to be. Anyway, it's it's an opportunity to totally mm. learn and and actually to experience mm. being loved and forgiven when we didn't deserve it, which seems like pretty good practice.
0: <laughs> for yeah. Us. Well, and what I love is what you're saying is it's not just like a one-time, oh, I'm going to go try this out, but it's really committing to a <laughs> lifestyle of being a stayer, which you proclaimed me yesterday. Andy interviewed me for his new podcast that's coming out with Praxis, which is an organization I work with that is really creative. Being redemptive entrepreneurship support for, for entrepreneurs. Yes. And anyway, totally, uh, totally. Andy proclaim me as a stayer, but that's really what this is. It's about this long-term view. And when you commit to being a stayer, then you're less concerned about being confronted by being offended because you're like, this is a learning um, and we're still going to be, we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to keep at this and I'm going to keep learning. <laughs> um, Okay, speaking of yesterday's conversation, which was incredible, oh. y'all, Andy, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I, I'm much more nervous to interview you today, however, than getting interviewed by you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to talk myself off of a ledge a little bit. So speaking of being afraid, that's what I wanted to talk about because Andy was really challenging me on his podcast that, um, Jessica, you're actually not afraid. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, Andy, I just wrote a whole book on this. You can't take it like take away this whole thing. But um, you challenged me to consider that maybe I'm not afraid, but, you know, I said that actually I think you can be afraid and you can exhibit it internally while externally you might not look Mm -hmm. afraid. But I'm wondering, what's your relationship (laughs) to fear? Like, are you one of those that gets more easily paralyzed, you know, or are you one of those that is, has that bias towards action? Um, I know you are more of a thought leader, but you're loving now getting to work among entrepreneurs. And you've said to me several times, they have a bias towards action and I'm loving that. So I want to know a little bit more, like how do you define courage? What's your relationship to fear?
1: Oh, man. Uh, well, I, I certainly love being around people who have a biased action and people who overcome their fears. I'm not sure if I am one, uh, excessively at least. I mean, I think I... Uh, I Well, I mean, what immediately comes to mind is the hardest thing I do, which is writing, um, which probably is the most important thing I do. Um, I don't know exactly how you weigh those things, but... Um, I I struggle tremendously with, with really with paralysis uh, when I am faced with the opportunity or the assignment to write, and it's it gets worse the bigger the assignment is. So books are by far the worst. Um, my first book uh, was turned in two and a half years late. I think. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, let's see. It was, it was a
0: it was a beast, though. That was cool. Was that Culture Makers?
1: <laughs> culture Culture Making is the culture first book I mean, published was, in two thousand eight. So it was turned in in 2000, December two thousand seven, I believe, or maybe October two thousand seven. The original due date on the contract that I signed was January thirty first two thousand five. Yes, so that is two and a half years late. And I would say, um, like. Of those two and a half years, two, two years of it was fear. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, the first year, so I signed that contract saying I delivered the book, January 31st, 2005. I signed that like a year ahead of time. And and at the end of that year, I so this is a 100,000 word book. I had 3,000 words written at the end of that year. A year in which, by the way, I had no other job. Like it actually turns out like the worst thing for a writer is to have nothing else to do. <laughs>
0: I can see that. I see. I'm, I'm more productive when I'm being
1: productive. Oh, totally. Oh my gosh. Uh, when I don't have anything else to do, I just discover unreserved capacity for procrastination. But I was so afraid. I had a very specific fear, um, actually. And this was a book about culture and how Christians in particular are called to be creators of culture, not just critics of culture. Um, and so I'm writing about uh, an area that a lot of uh, like academics study, especially anthropologists, of course, and sociologists. And I was trying to do a sort of intellectually responsible job of writing that about that, even though I have not been trained in either of those fields. And the very specific fear I had, among many, (laughs) was that a sociologist would read the book uh, when it came out and say, This is stupid. Hmm. And I actually had a specific sociologist in mind. And and, uh, and so you were like
0: writing to this sociologist, basically. or not writing. So not writing. <laughs> right. Well, you weren't writing because you just kept imagining. Because yeah. imagine.
1: Yes. Uh, and many other things, but that was certainly one of them. Now, the crazy thing is a year or two after my book was published, this sociologist did actually publish a book in which he spent four pages on my book and in academic prose said, This book is stupid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh so my the, gosh. So your worst fear did the, actually exhibit the, itself.
1: The very thing I was afraid of happened. Absolutely. Like pretty much, I mean, without the use of those exact words, but in academia and in intellectual circles, everyone knows how to say this is stupid without using those words. Um, it was like, extremely dismissive, like take on my book. And, and so what you have to know is that by the time that happened, I was totally free of that mm. <laughs> and it didn't, A, it didn't matter at all. uh, Like at a deep spiritual level, I mean, I wasn't happy about his assessment of the book, but and it it has not affected the fruitfulness of the work at all. And in one sense, that kind of back and forth is just part of taking a risk as a writer. And what happened is um, at the end of that January, when I was supposed to have the whole thing done and had nothing done for all practical purposes, I I was at a conference uh, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which I worked with, and. Two of my best friends from my years in campus ministry, I had i had left uh, that work, but I came back, I think I was doing a seminar or something, and I just happened in the hallway to see these two dear, dear friends who known, had known me at that point for 15 years. And I said, guys, I need you to pray for me. <laughs> I don't know if all your... So what I'm going to recount may sound like freaky for those who may not be Christians, but this is just what happened. And this is the kind of thing we, crazy thing we Christians do. So. Will and Christina um, sat down with me behind a potted plant in uh, the hallway of the St. Louis, Missouri Conference Center Convention Center, and I said, "I just have to confess to you, like where I am in this, and what what I haven't done, and kind of why I haven't done it." and um, And they laid their hands on me and prayed for me, and it was, I, it, uh, you know, we have this word that we associate specifically with um demons like the forces in the world that most seek to destroy us and uh the word being deliverance and it was that kind of experience um it was very emotional i was i was so ashamed of myself for just squandering this year right mm. and, but my friends um i mean you know they sat with me i i just wept i mean i was, it was so that like truly messy crying and mm-hmm. and then they prayed and then they actually each had things to confess in their own life from their own fears and so we prayed for one another and after about like 45 minutes of this we got up and hugged each other and we i at least and i think they too were like set free in this very fundamental way And I went home, and it still took me a year and a half to get the (laughs) dang thing done. then you had to write a 100,000-word book, minus
0: 3,000,
1: okay. 97,000 words to go. And it's still hard, and there was still procrastination. But I have to say, I was set free at this very deep level by that one intervention from those friends. And they're thanked, of course, in the acknowledgments to the book. And uh that book was two and a half years late. Playing God, uh the book that I think has been meaningful to you was one year late. My third book, Strong and Weak, was one month late, or maybe two months.
0: They've also gotten shorter and shorter. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, the books have gotten shorter, that's true. Uh but Tech techwise family, my last one was one week late. So I'm getting a lot better at like facing this. And also I just I really feel that moment in that behind that potted plant, <laughs> wow. which was our Old potted plant by the way um, I can picture it right now was yeah. the turning point in my sort of mm-hmm. in my life of mm-hmm. as a public voice like mm-hmm. I would not have had a voice without that deliverance
0: well and you had that moment because you had been vulnerable and had been able to share that with your <laughs> friends and they received that in a place of empathy so I think our, yeah. quote our friend Kurt Thompson and he would say this yeah. is like the oh, yeah. neurobiology oh, my of the oh, brain. Totally, you know? totally, totally. And <laughs> that's that's so powerful. And I yeah. think that we often stay paralyzed and we think we're the only one. I mean, we all have I mean I've definitely had that, you know, like this person in my head, you know, I, I do that sometimes when I'm speaking and maybe I know I'm speaking to some people that are, that maybe are going to disagree or yep. um, I've been in some situations, maybe when we're in a tough time as a business and I'm, I'm speaking to maybe some of my critics and I'll prepare my talk for the critics. It's like, I prepare this uh-huh. whole thing at it. And uh-huh. it's really at this place of fear instead of, Lifting up and walking in faith, which faith is future oriented, you know, yeah. and faith leads, yeah. I think fear paralyzes
1: oh, totally, and yeah, and I, I mean sometimes you're driven well often right you're driven to that vulnerability. That is actually the way out by desperation. I mean, that was my situation. You know, like I also, you know, we, as you know, uh, for books like this, you are paid in advance uh, as when you sign the contract, or at least Mm -hmm. a certain amount. I had spent that money. (laughs) I was like, I can't get that back. I can't refund the publisher. Like, I have to deliver a book. So, desperation sometimes is great at getting us out of that paralysis, but on the other side of it is such uh, amazing freedom. Yeah. And being, and as Kurt would say, being known and, uh, knowing that you're loved and you're, you're accepted in your failure to be who you were meant to be, and then somehow you're able to actually be who you're meant to be.
0: <laughs> well, right. And I think sometimes we want to, right, we, we're outcome oriented. So you're imagining the sociologist, and obviously you're wanting the sociologist praise, not this sociologist you know, crit- criticism. Yeah. And we want to try to control this outcome and I love in your story, your worst fear came true because it's not about being able to <laughs> yeah, yeah. risk assess the situation so much to where right. you're like, no, it's actually all going to turn out. I think sometimes when we share fears with our friends, our tendencies to want to say that would never happen or no, no, no. And it's like, yeah. that could happen. Right. And then what? And right. then what? Would you still be loved? Yes. Would you still be intact? I mean, Andy, wow. you didn't die. You know right. what I mean? Like you're alive. Right. You know, and so some of that is just going your worst fear actually isn't your it's your worst fear. It's not what is going to define you. You know, don't be yeah. defined by yeah. this failure or this fear of failure. But instead, you know, go scared, go scared. The name of the yes. podcast.
1: Yes. Exactly. So
0: when I read Plain God, it's interesting because we have this saying at noonday, her success doesn't diminish mine.
1: Wow. Which in a sales organization, that's a big deal.
0: Yeah. So that's, I wanted to talk about this because when I first started Noonday, I was like, here on fire. I wasn't looking around at competition. I wasn't looking at the marketplace. I had done no competitive analysis. I was just (laughs) like, I had a boy in Rwanda. I needed money for it. Other women were like, I want to open my house. This is awesome jewelry. And I just started building. And then there came a point where the stakes got a little bit higher and you know i eventually got my business partner travis i told you all about that story yesterday it's it's outlined in my book and suddenly when people are starting to risk on me i started feeling that a lot more of that fear because somehow Mm -hmm. their failure would be linked to my my failure would then bring them down right and my success would bring them up but as again i tend to plan for failure not success unfortunately (laughs) and so then i started looking around a lot more and kind of probably was a little obsessive like maybe it was this sociologist moment for me where i'm like looking at you know other a couple of other artists and businesses this was you know several years ago there was not a whole lot actually on the landscape and i would follow them and honestly i think what i i ultimately felt was you know was it jealousy was it competition ultimately was mm. it wanting what they had you know and when mm. we want what someone mm. else has wow. we wow, actually wow, wow. aren't focused on what we do have right yes. and it can be so distracting wow. and i had such this moment after reading your book of that idea of power and it's not a zero sum game And this brand, these other two brands that I was eyeing, their success actually wasn't diminishing mine. Like it was taking nothing away from the success of Noonday. And I I can remember decisively because I read the book and I was like, I got to hear more of this guy. And I think I listened to some sort of talk you gave on the book. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of our office and just crying and going Hmm. and asking God for forgiveness that... I had really seen power and success as the zero sum game.
1: Mm, Yep.
0: So I wanted us to talk a little bit about, first of all, your philosophy around power, power, multiplying power, flourishing power. And then how do we reconcile that now that you're working with entrepreneurs, where we Mm. very much do have to look at the consumer pie and we do... Mm kind of need to take into consideration, what is our competitive analysis? What's our competitive advantage? And I know these things you haven't fully fleshed out, but I've asked you to, I'm like, could you please write a book on this? (laughs) Um, But let's firstly the groundwork for whatever that moment, I can't even tell you what exactly it was that I read specifically. I just remember there was just this idea that power is not the zero sum game. and totally more equals more. And I realized I've been living in this scarcity mentality.
1: Right. Right. Well, yeah. So I think the key fundamental idea here is that there is a kind of power that is a zero sum game and it's force. It's mm. um, compulsion, coercion, ultimately violence, right? And if and and this involves making someone or something do something they don't want to do, um, mm. or that they resist doing. And it can, I mean, it can at the physics level it can be just like closing a door, like the door resists with a certain amount of inertial something or other <laughs> I don't right. I'm, not, I'm not a scientist but uh, right and so it's it's pushing against resistance and that is a zero-sum game like either actually it's very humid here today and our front door barely closes like to close it I have to use a lot of force almost a level of violence <laughs> I'm tempted to use a lot of violence against my front door actually I'm frustrated with it and either the door wins or I win and uh, like that is, that is zero-sum That's
0: what That's sum.
1: Yeah. And literally like, well, actually it's slightly negative sum. (laughs) If you want to deep physics, second law of thermodynamics says every exchange like that actually slightly increases the disorder in the world the work uh, energy that's not available for work. So like every time you like lay out some energy to get something to happen, you actually diminish cosmically the remaining energy available. Um, So force is a contest in which only one party can win. Uh, either I can make you do something or you can make me do something. But there's a completely different kind of power, which is the power to bring something into being that does not exist. And I would call that creative power instead of coercive power. So coercive power is the ability to get stuff that already exists to do what I want. And that's that's a limited quantity.
0: Which but- I would say, obviously, I mean, that's pretty much defines injustice, right? Is the negative use of power.
1: Yes, the yes, ab- absolutely. Use of power, absolutely. Which I just
0: remembered. We're actually going to see each other this weekend, aren't you? I'm speaking at yes, liberate. Yeah, I just remembered that. Like, we're <laughs> we are getting so much of each other this week. This, <laughs> this is hilarious.
1: The, it's awesome. Much overdue, okay. I'll say. Yeah, yeah. So, all injustice, um, well, in ju- so all injustice. Ultimately, deploys violence. Um, so, violence is force that violates the dignity of, of another. So, if I get really mad at that door and I slam it violently, I'm using more force than necessary to get it to do what I need it to do, and I'm kind of violating its design, and I'm actually violating myself too. Right? It would be embarrassing, in some sense, to have someone see me get mad at my front door just because it's ticking. Because I'm, I'm like, I'm stepping out of the bounds of what it is to be a uh, healthy human being, and what is in this case to be a healthy door. Now that's not that big a deal if it's a door, it's a big deal if it's another human being. And all injustice violates. That is, it denies the dignity of someone else, often in order to achieve its coercive aims. Mm -hmm. Um, And and yes, so that's the very essential pattern uh, of of injustice and, and violence. Creativity, on the other hand, creation, is not limited in this way. There are so uh, a very simple example is that we're having a conversation now, and because we're really listening to each other, and because we are creative people, and I, I don't mean we're creatives like some people are creative, some are not. We, we're we like people who are creative. All people are. All people. And Listen
0: to that, listeners. You are yes, creative. You're I hate, created I an actually, image of God to be creative.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I hate it when uh, people talk about creatives. You know, I mean, I understand I when know. we name that profession, but no, 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 every human being as we listen to each other, we use the English language, which is a finite resource. That is, we're not making up any words in this conversation. We're not changing the rules of grammar at all. And yet, I guarantee each of us has spoken a sentence in in this conversation that we have never spoken before. And in fact, linguists say we have spoken a sentence that has never been spoken in the history of the English language. Hmm. So we have made something new out of limited resources. Like we aren't making up some new language, but we're rearranging it in a creative way that brings into being something that if we do it well is worthwhile. Um, and that to me is, is like a picture of what can happen with all of um, creation. It, it is finite, like there's only so much stuff in the world and we can't make more of it. But when we relate to the world creatively rather than, than coercively, we, there's actually so much room to bring value into the world. And among other things, so you put this in a business context, you know, business in one sense is just, um, the recognition of value and the exchange of, of tokens of value. And it's, it's the fundamental human creativity that means that there is no, um, clear ceiling on how much we can create and how much value we can add to the world when we do it creatively rather than coercively. Mm-hmm. So the, the way this applies to, you know, so you're starting a, a direct sales business, or, you know, I think it's obviously what you do is so much bigger than that, but, but one could reduce it to that, or a jewelry mm-hmm. business, or, you know, you could use any number of reductive kind of pictures, right? And then you look at the competitive landscape, you're like, well, well, there's lots of other people trying to do that. And when you have a coercive mindset, you think, how can we take market share from that mm-hmm. other business? Um, Which is
0: a very common way to – I mean, isn't that – I mean, is that Jeff – actually, Jeff Bezos, he he actually doesn't believe – he doesn't look at his competition. Isn't that his philosophy?
1: It may well be. I haven't heard that, but I wouldn't I be surprised because, in fact uh, – now, it's it may well be the case that over time, some ventures become more viable and others become less viable, but not really – uh, not in a healthy environment by going out and like grabbing, uh, th- because that's so uncreative. Like, and, and by the way, where that does happen is in in what we call in economics commodities. So commodities are things that are indistinguishable from one another. One is just as good as another. Essentially, that's to say there is no creativity involved in their production. They're ex- often extracted. They're natural uh, resources of, of different kinds often. And when you're in a commodity business, it is zero sum. Whoever can sell at the lowest market clearing price gets the market share. But but the whole goal of, of business actually is to not merely be in the commodity business. And it's to actually add value. And when you do that, ideally, you do it in spaces that have nothing there. So you don't so much look at your competitors and think, how can I beat that person? You ask, and this is where competitive landscape analysis is absolutely the right thing to do. You ask, what's just missing? Like what what doesn't even exist yet that we could create? And and the amazing history of the last 120 or 200 years is is over and over? People realizing there's there's this whole realm that's missing that innovation allows us to to create space in, and it it doesn't so much displace or coerce as simply open up possibility. Now, I don't want to deny you know there's a, another level at which economics functions. You know it uh, there are elements of scarcity, right? And that happens in business, and uh, and we have a lot fewer people, you know, making wagon wheels, but like.
0: Like, let's take Walmart.
1: So Walmart uh, kind of famously competes on price. They don't compete on creativity, right? They compete on squeezing. Uh, I would say, uh, with all respect to Walmart, and there's there's lots of good things about being an efficient business, but the, their right. whole company culture is efficiency. But mm-hmm. that actually leaves so much room for other kinds of companies whose company culture is something other than mere kind of um, squeezing waste out, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. who actually create something. And there's and so yes, Walmart did displace less efficient um, uh, competitors for sure. But it also contributes. Uh, the, well, at the same time I'm not going to say that Walmart's the cause of it, but at the same time there's this economy that is growing in all other all kinds of other dimensions
0: that Walmart doesn't touch, can't touch. Mm-hmm. So That's so true. It's this whole idea of there's different lanes, you know, yes. and run in your lane.
1: And find because it would be like we said This podcast, like, is, is, you know, could this podcast eventually dominate all other podcasts, right? Well, in one sense, people only have so much time to listen, right? So in one sense, there is a competitive landscape. People are listening to us rather than something else they could be listening to. But really what's going on here is you are curating a set of conversations in which new things are said that have never been said before that couldn't have been said unless you took the risk of Calling me up and and Tasha and mm. all your other guests and saying, would you spend an hour, which is scarce, and out of that scarce hour and out of our listeners' time, could we create something that doesn't exist? And the, the truth is, like this is uh this is exactly the right thing to do. And there's no that as that creative aspect, there's no coercion involved and there's no um uh sort of domination involved. It's
0: just opening up new possibilities. I- I'm in love with this. And Andy, I struggle, I struggle. And I'm trying to identify because I'm a creator, right? Well, Mm. we all are creators, but so I have this bias towards action I go and do, but then somewhere along the way, it's like Uh, when I launched my uh, book and I launched it, I launched a book tribe a couple months before the book. And these are my advocates that were going to go and and bring it to market and 2000 women signed up. And I just remember mm. feeling absolutely humbled. And I was like, if, uh. if you guys are the only ones that read my book like this, like I am grateful. And you know, then one of my mentors, Brené Brown huh. read the book and endorsed yeah, the book and yeah. I was just so humbled. And I yeah. thought this is better than the New York Times. Like, right? like, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. And I had all of this, like, I'm just offering gift. I'm offering my life as gift. I'm offering, it's all just gift. And then the book launched <laughs> and then suddenly I'm like looking at the Amazon list. I'm like, we're going to take that person down. Like I'm just, I, mean, I was like, I was like, I want to be on the New York Times bestseller. Yes, I mean, besides, yes. my book is rescuing women out of brothels. My book is bringing justice <laughs> to the world. My book can help people get off their couch and go change the world. It matters so much more than those five top bestsellers, which, by the way, means I should be doing better. And by the way, God, you better make my book do better. Oh and
1: my gosh!
0: My joy in a time when you think this should be joy, right? It should be like I, I finally. It's birth, And I mean, it's been like um, almost a three-year process, you know, yes. between inception yes. to, to birth. And I am side wow. and not celebrating. Uh, and I'm feeling like, uh. oh, I got 24 on that list, but I didn't get five.
1: <laughs> totally. And
0: I mean, thankfully I realized, but even realizing it though, still didn't mean it just took a long Uh time. I'm just now settling in a few weeks in actually this, ironically, this is the last podcast in this whole imperfect courage series. Uh You are my final (laughs) guest for these beautiful 12 podcasts. This is a chapter building this flourishing world. And there's just this push pull. Like we start something and it's beautiful and we're doing it for the love of it. But then suddenly for me, not for all, people. I I don't know if this is in my personality or what, but like then suddenly it becomes about the outcome and not about the journey. And then I'm suddenly looking at everyone else's lane and I'm thinking my lane matters more. So it should be bigger and better. Break it down for me, Andy. How does this fit? Like, I know.
1: I could, I could totally break it down. And I've been there. I mean, I will say, gosh, I, Oh, I, I'm so grateful that I, I imposed a discipline after my first book of never looking at those Amazon numbers um, or any of those other numbers um, because it is, it, Oh, I know exactly. I know
0: exactly what you have been. So saying. that's a real and practical thing I could do because I still thing. look at him. Never, every
1: day. Oh, never, never, never. Uh, what, because, well, for so many reasons, but let me, let me give you the most fundamental. This is, in our founding story, <laughs> so God creates, right, in Genesis right. 1, whether you believe it literally or take it as a kind of deeply instructive myth, it doesn't really matter for my purposes right now. God creates this abundant world. Day after day brings into being things that are not. Places image bearers, male and female, in that world, in this abundant environment of a garden, right, and says, now it's your turn, in a way, uh, to, to Im- imitate me as creator, into that garden somehow comes a serpent who says, um, I notice a limitation in this garden. You're not allowed to touch that or eat from that tree. And the woman's like, yeah, we're not even allowed to touch it, which God didn't actually say. And the serpent says, you know why? It's because God is in the zero sum game. And if God knows if you eat that tree, you will be like God. And he's the serpent says this as if it's a bad thing, as if it's something God is afraid of. God Mm. definitely does not want any competition in his cosmos. So the servant's like, but God knows if you eat it, he's going to have competition. And you'll be just like him. And the woman's like, well, the interesting thing is they are like God. They're made in God's image. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. it's actually something that in a way they should want. But what she hears and what the man hears and what human beings have heard ever since is God is in the zero-sum business, and if I'm not going to be ground down by a dominating God who just wants to put limits on me and prevent me from being what I'm meant to be, I have to uh, disobey and uh, dominate myself, and ultimately, as Nietzsche said, I'm going to eventually have to kill God if I could. And it's a lie. It's absolutely a lie, because for the whole rest of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, God never uh, responds in kind. <laughs> He's not mm. in this game. He's not in the competitive game. And for those of us who are Christians, God ultimately like submits himself entirely to his creation. instead of us becoming like God, God becomes like us and uh, and even is not afraid of death, which is of course the thing that haunts all of this this whole story. Now, what is the thing that is most scarce? Now, time is very scarce, but there's something that's even more scarce, and it's status and status is your place in line and only one person can be first in line and that's the very very dangerous power of all those lists <laughs> is they mm-hmm. rank order books but really we read them we people read them as ranking people and the worth uh, our worth as people and we and the only way for me to climb that that list is to for someone else to decline right mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that Jesus, the one thing, I mean, Jesus was very engaged with the world around him in all kinds of ways, but the one thing he showed no interest in at all was status. He's in a town, um, the ruler of the synagogue, most important man in the town perhaps, comes to him with a, a need, his daughter is ill. Jesus is ready to go with him, but then along comes this woman. Um, She's been a total exile from the community because she's been bleeding for 12 years. She just touches the hem of his cloak. He doesn't even initially know who it is. And he's just as interested in her as he is in this uh, very high status man. And he ends up, meeting both of their needs and talking with both of them and deeply engaging with both of them. James and John, the two disciples come and they're like, Jesus, could you arrange for us to be in places number one and number two (laughs) at your messianic banquet? And Jesus is like, do you know what you're asking? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, and then he says, I, I don't even know who's going to be in those places. And he shows totally, he just doesn't even care. He's like, that's Mm -hmm. for whoever Mm -hmm. the father has decided to put, I I don't even pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. He's sitting at, a dinner with his disciples where normally the lowest status person in the room would have to, and ideally, ideally, quote unquote, it would be a, a slave, right? An enslaved person or someone very, very low status would come around and wash everyone's feet from the dirty road. But if there wasn't a, a slave in the room to do it, whoever was like the most junior, the, everyone would do a sort of a, a mental accounting like, Oh, I think that's, you know, Matthew's job or whatever. And all the disciples are so, too proud to wash each other's feet. So they sit apparently through most of the dinner with unwashed feet, which for us would be like picking your nose and then not washing your hands, right? <laughs> um, but everyone's too proud to do it. Jesus gets up after dinner, takes off his robe, ties a towel around his waist, and goes around and washes everyone's feet because he just he doesn't care mm. because he's not in that game. <laughs> he's in the creative game. And in the creative game, there's there's no such thing as is my sentence better than your sentence? Like did because you've said, beautiful, important things as we've talked. I've hopefully said some beautiful, important things. There's no competition between the things we've said. We've added to the world and we've actually together added something we never would have added on our own. And Jesus, all he cares about is creativity. <laughs> um, and so this is why it's really, <laughs> all this means don't look at the Amazon number. <laughs> I
0: mean, I'm crying right now because it's been, it's been a thing. And- oh, it's so real. It's so real. And I'm, I'm crying on behalf of all the listeners right now. And maybe it's not about a book for them, but it's about something like, we just, and so is it even, this isn't necessarily where I, cause I, I have this beautiful way to wrap this up and it's how you describe a flourishing world, but <laughs> is it possible then to be competitive? Like it can that language exist oh, or yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like, is that something that we as faith oriented people and, I, I'm also crying because, you know, that part in my book at the end where Richard Foster, who mm. is this Quaker theologian, it, I'm 21 years old. I'm, I'm attending this retreat of his. I'm about to go overseas with Food for the Hungry. And he did not know me from Adam. This guy does not mm. know me. And I. he asked if people wanted prayer at the end. And I'm thinking, God, this is kind of Pentecostal, but I'm like, sure. <laughs> like, I wasn't expecting a Quaker to be wrapping it up like this. So I'm like, well, I'll get prayer from this guy. I mean, my gosh, he wrote, you know, the Celebration of Discipline, just deep spiritual, you know, framework. They're very high
1: status. I'm sure his prayers matter, especially to God because of-
0: Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in line. Anyway, he he just starts talking to me and then he looks at me and he says, never scorn the rich and never glorify the poor. Wow. Just walk in the Holy Spirit Be like Mother Teresa, whether she was in India with a leper or whether she was in the White House with the president, it didn't matter. And and so as you're talking, like, (laughs) of course, prophetically, this has played out in my life. My entire business is about bridging rich and poor and creating connection and meaning. But really, I could almost summarize what he said is like don't care about status, you know? Yes. But it's so easy to say don't care about status, right? (laughs) Like it's like a rule. Like we all know, be like Jesus, you know? (laughs) But what I love what you're saying is the solution to that is stepping into this story of creation, of being that co-creator. Like I mean, would you say that is what the invitation that you're holding out to us?
1: Absolutely. And and you asked about competition and and you know, and uh, there's there's purpose to competition for the development of us. Like I, uh, my son's wants to be a musician. He uh, he competes against other musicians in auditions and so forth. It's a way of pushing yourself to be your best. But but the the goal is is um, the goal is to be able to say of our lives it was very good. Um, so this is what God says at the end of his own act of creating in Genesis 1. God saw everything he had made, including the man and the woman, and said, it's very good. And that is an evaluation, right? So it's not its mm-hmm. not like we become indifferent um, mm-hmm. to our lives, to the fruit of our lives, to what we've made of our lives. I'm not indifferent to that two and a half years i I well not all of it but much of it wasted i would say that was a waste that was not very good i regret that fortunately i feel totally forgiven and free of that failure but it was a failure and so i'm not competing primarily against other authors <laughs> i am i am competing in a way against actually in a way the voice of scarcity the voice of competition that mm-hmm. paralyzes me and that that says well why don't you just do something mediocre so you won't even pretend you're trying to be excellent, or you know. There's so mm. many different forms this takes, but but the, the what we press toward and what we arrange our lives to push us toward and, and train. I mean, Paul, the apostle says, I, "I." I mean, he uses strong language. He says, "I beat my body <laughs> to get it into shape, so I'll be able to run this race that at the end of my life I'll be able to say this was very good." Mm. And that's not this was better than what Jessica did. It's mm-hmm. no, no. What came into the world because of my life. And the people that God gave me to partner with brought something into the world that that fulfilled the creator's original intention, that that his world would be um, opened up and all of its possibilities would be explored. And that is not something in which I'm fundamentally competing with others. It's something in which I'm, I'm actually having to shed and lay aside that idea that I am here to win and instead realize I'm here uh, to bring a kind of flourishing that if I don't take a risk, if I don't act, it will it will never be. And yet if I do, thanks to the ultimate rescue of all things (laughs) by the one who will renew all things, it will actually Mm -hmm. matter. And it will have brought something into the world that wasn't there before.
0: And we can get to say those words very good. Whereas if we're paralyzed by not being number one or by what that other person might say about us or that this other person is not going to perceive us as not as smart or the sociologist or whatever it might be and um, we never get to hear those words. Yeah. It's in a sense. so
1: different from not good enough, which is what you'll hear eternally in a sense if you set up that comparison. It, it's it's just it, it is just I mean, um the well, uh at the very beginning of Jesus' public life, uh, this voice comes from heaven, "This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased." He hasn't even done anything. God is just pleased to be in a relationship with him. And then the promise at the end is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And, you know, there's this one parable where people have been working different amounts, like they they technically should have earned different amounts. And the, the owner of that vineyard just pays everyone the same thing. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and some complain. They're like, hey, well, I, I worked all day. And God's like, well, what is that to you? I, I gave you what you most want, which in, I think outside the terms of that little parable is, what do I most want? It's to know that my life mattered it's to know that i participated in creating something very good that i that i was ultimately who i was created to be and that's and that is the reward um not and nothing else and uh, there's nothing else on offer actually <laughs> than god saying well done good and faithful servant
0: at the end of our lives mm. this is such a beautiful way to wrap up this series and this chapter which is called Building a Flourishing World. And I love how you say that a flourishing world is a world where every creature can be fully, truly, gloriously itself. Most of all, where God's own image bearers bear that image Hmm. in all its fullness, variety, and capacity. And it is such a beautiful story that we're invited into, and then we get to invite others into and bring this flourishing to the slums of India. Totally to the brothels of Beijing, to the disparities that exist in Uganda. And we get to create these spaces where other people can be gloriously themselves. So thank you. Mm. Thank you for for your writing. Thank you for not staying paralyzed. <laughs> 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 because I know I certainly have gotten to really... Um, <sighs> really lean into a framework that's so rich, um, in the way that you have created your words for, for me and for countless others. Oh, thank you, Jessica. So Andy definitely caught me in the middle of just my own processing around this idea of how can we be ambitious, but do it in a way that is joyful and freeing and, I just love this idea that her success doesn't diminish mine and that creativity is regenerative and it's abundant. And I really want to live from that place. It's such a beautiful way to wrap up this entire series. You can keep up with Andy via andycrouch.com. And just before you go, I just want to thank you so much, truly. My Imperfect Courage listeners, it's just been, it's been such a joy to meet so many of you. By the time you hear this, I will have wrapped up my last stop of 2018. I love hearing from you. I love reading your reviews. So I would love for you to go leave a review on iTunes and tell me what you've learned from this series of Imperfect Courage. Let, let iTunes know about it so that other people can find this and Uh, We can all build a world that flourishes together. Our wonderful music for today's show is by my good friend, Ellie Holcomb, and the Going Scared podcast is produced by Eddie Kolpoltz. And I'm Jessica Honiger. Until next time, which is a whole new series, let's take each other by the hand and keep going scared.